All right, church, it's been a busy weekend for us here, uh, not only because we have Baptism Sunday, we had Group Connect this morning, some of you were here for that, uh, but over the last week, over the last five days, we've had Kids Week. I think I've got some pictures behind me. Uh, if you don't know this, we love kids here. Next door, we've got about 175 kids in that other building on Sundays. That's a lot of kids, okay? Thankfully, that's over four services, but that is a lot of kids, and one of the things that we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus loved kids and kids loved Jesus. That kids want, Jesus was the kind of guy kids wanted to be around. And here at Two Cities, we love children, we love families, we love our city. So this past week, we were serving together in, the, uh, in our city, and it was just an incredible time. Uh, I want to say thank you. I know they're not in the service because they were here this morning, but if you don't know Austin and Melissa and Leslie, they are all on staff with us in the kids' ministry, and they make everything happen. So if you're ever over there and you see someone and they're named Austin, or they're named Leslie, or they're named Melissa, say thank you for them. I want to pray for our kids' ministry, and then we're going to dive into to 1 Peter chapter 3. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for our kids. I thank you for all the parents who are investing in them. I thank you for uh, particularly Melissa and Austin uh, and Leslie and the army of volunteers that made not only Kids Week, but every week in that kids area happen. And how they, they strive to pray for these kids, share Christ with these kids, love these kids. We just pray that our kids would love the church, love the Bible, love each other, love Christ from a young age. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles, type 2, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you're new with us, we're walking through the book of 1 Peter. It's going to take us about three months. We're about halfway through today. And what we've seen so far, well, let's look at verse 8. He kind of changes his tune in verse 8. He says this, finally, but he's only halfway through his epistle. He's a classic pastor preacher, okay? He says he's almost done with his sermon. I may do this once or twice today. Uh, and, uh, and he's still got a lot of time left. So he says, finally, and then he says, all of you. Well, why is he saying all of you? Because for a while, he was only speaking to some of them. Uh, for a while, he was saying, okay, husbands, love your wives, and live, wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, he was saying things like, hey, workers, uh, you know, submit to your employers. He was saying, citizens, obey your government. He was talking in all different kind of groups and individuals, and now he's going to be able to say, hey, this is something for everyone. And let me just say, uh, by the way, because I get to hear these stories, and I don't get to share them all with you guys, but I get to hear and I get to see a lot of things throughout the week. And in light of last week's text and message on marriage and on submission and headship and, and some archaic terms uh, to our culture today, uh, I got the most positive feedback I've ever gotten in any message. In fact, I had one woman, she walked up to me during Kids Week, and she said, I want to let you know that my husband was not able to be at your message. I was not able to be there, but I went home, and I just went to him, and I said, I want to be a better wife. I want to, I want to follow you more fully and respect you more deeply. I'm like, that's amazing. I, I heard another group of, of a group of three to five men that have been meeting together, a DNA group we call them here, and the three men said to each other, you know what, we've not been the husbands we need to, we've not been the leaders in our home we need to, we need to step it up, lead our families more, and hold each other accountable. It's like that's the exact opposite of what's happening in our society today, where most men are abdicating and abandoning their authority. I heard another story of a, of a, of a dad. He, they, I guess the kids and the mom said, hey, listen to the sermon. He listened to the sermon in his bedroom, came out of his bedroom, called the family together, said, I repent. I've not been a spiritual leader of this home, and I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better man. I ask your forgiveness. That's why we teach and preach and do everything we do. We do it in order that, starting with myself, because I'm working on it all week, that myself, that each of you would say, I want to respond to what God is saying to me. That's what worship is. 
I want to respond to what the Word of God says. So that's what we're going to do today because now it's going to go from addressing individual situations to addressing the church as a whole. Look at me at verse 8. He says, finally, all of you. So he's writing to Christians, but if you're in this room and you say, I'm a Christian, this message is for you. If you're in the room and you're not a Christian, then I would just say, listen in, because this today is particularly a message about how Christians are to live together. And here's what he says. Finally, all of you have, what's on Paul's mind? Unity. We're going to talk about this. That may sound like a boring word, but it's not. I was um, in Austin, Texas about a year ago, and I have a mentor pastor that I know, and I was down meeting with him, having dinner with him, and every pastor needs a pastor. And pastor Dave and I have several mentors in our life, and he said, I was telling him what was happening in our church and how much you know, we've grown spiritually, numerically, organizationally, and he said, do you know what destroys healthy, fast-growing churches? And I took my pen and paper out, and I was like, well, tell me what it is. And he said, well, moral failure of a senior leader or a high-capacity volunteer I said, okay, well, I thought about that. And, I, and some of you have been in that church. You've seen that. You're still heartbroken over what happened there. He said, well, that's one way. So the second thing is disunity among God's people or division among God's people. And so we have to work very, very hard to keep the church unified together. And so this is what's on Paul's mind. He says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind. It starts in the mind. And then it moves to the emotions. Look at verse, continue on. Sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. And then he says this, and a humble mind. Here's what we're going to spend the rest of today talking about. We're going to talk about uh, how this place is not our home. That's the title of the series. But instead, it's a place of commitment. That what Peter is going to do in these eight or nine verses we're looking at together today is he's going to call you to be a man or a woman of commitment which is going to go against everything the culture tells you today. Because we live in a culture that doesn't like to commit. People are delaying marriage. Why would you delay marriage? Well, there might be some good reasons. I'm sure there are some good reasons, but I'll tell you a main reason. I don't want to commit. Why would I want to say, if I say yes to one woman, then I'm saying no to all possible women. So men continually delay marriage, particularly men do. People delay getting a career. And really saying, I'm going to focus, I'm going to develop myself, I'm going to commit to a calling, I'm going to commit to a company. Why? Well, because I'd like to travel, I'd like to see the world, I'd like to, maybe I'm not going to, you know, want to stay here. I want to be able to leave at any moment. People don't buy homes. Why? They're afraid of commitment. People don't choose a church, become a member, stay connected, serve, give, get in a community. Why? Because they want a way out. And it's counterintuitive. It's one of those things that if you've never experienced it, you're not going to believe this, but actually all the blessings of God in life flow through commitment. That it's actually when you decide, I'm going to commit. I'm going to love one woman my whole life. It's like you want to see the blessing of God in your life. I'm going to raise kids. I'm going to live in a city. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to commit to a church. You're going to be really busy. But your life is going to be so meaningful. You're not even going to ask deep questions about life. It's going to be right in front of you, so meaningful all the time. You're going to have so much to do. And so what this is calling us to is it's calling us to be people of commitment. And I'm going to give you three commitments that arise right out of the Scripture. And by the way, what is commitment? It's saying no to something so you could say yes to something better. It's synonymous with sacrifice and worship. And so there's three things that we are called to commit to in this passage. First of all, I want you to see in verse 8, we are called to be committed to being a unified church in the midst of a divided world. 
We are to be a unified church, that's the word unity, in the midst of a divided world. Now you know this, unity will not come naturally. It does not come naturally in your marriage. It does not come naturally with your family. Um, in our presidential election season of polarization and over-politicalization, uh, our nation is divided. And what a, what a divided nation needs is a unified church. And so I want us to talk about what is unity, because unity today, it's a buzzword, right? It's the kind of word that people who shop at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods like to use. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like a cool, you know, oh yeah, we're all about unity. We're all about, you know, loving one another. Well, by the way, the word community, this is a lot of words that we forget the roots of them. What is community? Pull the words apart. Common unity. So if you've ever said, I want to be a part of a Christian community, you're saying, I would like to have a common unity. Same with the word universe. Where do we get the word universe? Unity, diversity. Boom. Universe. Why do you go to university? So you can study the unity and diversity of the world. Boom. That's how that word came to be. So community is that we want to have a common unity. Now, there are a lot of false unities. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, one way that unity is achieved in a cheap way, let's say it that way, is that people have, they say, well, let's, this is particularly theologically liberal churches will say, well, why don't we lower what we believe to such a small amount of things that anybody could agree with what we believe? So it's a low-level belief system. And that's not what we're called to do here. In fact, what we're going to see in a moment is that truth is what unifies us. Uh, sometimes people substitute unity for uniformity. Uniformity is we all dress the same, we all look the same, we all talk the same, and that's what we call a cult. <laughs> that's, you know, you're like, stay away from those. There's, that's where you're all the same on the outside. It's like very, very scary. True unity is based on God's word. So I want us, I want us to look at how he talks about doing this. Look again at verse 8. He says this, Finally, all of you, look how the verse it's important to see what jumps out of the text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What he's saying is that unity, he, he says there's a unity of mind, there's a humble mind. What is a humble mind? A humble mind is a mind that realizes it does not know everything. Humility says there's, uh, I'm ignorant of many things and I'm very finite and the list of things I don't know is much bigger than the things I know. So that should constantly humble me and you. What you don't know is so much bigger than what you know all the time. And so you should be a humble person to say, I, there's so little that I know. And you fi particularly find this out when you have kids. Because your kids, and I know many of you, this is one of the younger services, many of you don't have kids. As soon as you have kids, they start asking you all these questions and you, you realize, I don't know anything. My kids the other day, they said to me, Dad, what is space like? And I said, it is, and confidently, I said, it is completely dark. And my wife said, no, it's not. She said, the sun shines in space. I was like, you're right. I know nothing about outer space, you know? <laughs> but, you know, it's like my kid comes up to me the other day. Dad, how does the internet work? I was like, Al Gore created it. That's all that I know. I don't know anything else about the internet. But you just realize, I know so little. And it's very, very humbling to realize that. And so what we realize is all we have, if you're a Christian, your understanding is all we have, apart from speculation, is revelation, what God has revealed to us. And so I want to talk to us today, and, and this is, I did this twice already this morning. We'll see if we can do it again. We're going to really, this is particularly, not every sermon is like this. This is going to be a particularly thinking sermon together. We are going to think together about how to be a unified church because we would like to be here, Two Cities Church would like to be here in 100 years. And for us to be here in 100 years, we need to be a unified church, not a divisive church. By the way, what is division? Well, two words again. Die, two, vision. 
picture of the future. We don't want to have two different pictures of the future. We want to have one picture of the future. So here's how you have unity. First of all, you need to realize that there are four types of unity. You may want to write these down. I'm going to unpack each one of these. There's theological unity, there's philosophical unity, there is missional unity, and there's relational unity. And all four of those are very important. Here's why those are important. Uh, When we are raising up new leaders in our church, we take them through those four unities. When we are dealing with our staff, those are the four areas of unity we talk about. So let me take each one of those and unpack them for you. So maybe if you're new with us, you're going to go, this is at least what Christians believe. The first thing that we believe is what is called theological unity. Theological unity means that Christians believe the same things about the most important things. Now, many of you are in the medical field, so you, you understand this. Uh, in theology, just like in medicine, there's a triage. You have to say, well, not all doctrines, not all teachings, not all beliefs are to the same importance. There are only probably six or seven or eight main tenets of Christianity that you must believe to be a Christian. That God eternally exists in three persons. That God created you in his image, but you are sinful by nature and choice. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, rose from the dead, died or died for you, rose from the dead. That you must uh, consciously repent and believe the gospel. That salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. That heaven and hell are real places that everybody goes to one of those two forever. I just explained to you Christianity in a nutshell. That is the heart of Christianity. Now, I hope you believe a lot more than that. But you cannot believe less than that and be a Christian. That's what's called a primary issue. If you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. There are what are called secondary issues that we can have unity over. Secondary issues are what, if you ever wondered, why is there Baptist, why is there Methodist, why is there Episcopalian, why is there Anglican? Why is there non-denominational, which is the largest denomination? Um, Why do we have all of these different denominations? Well, the answer is secondary issues. Again, think with me. These are not issues that make you a believer or not, but they affect how you order your church, and there's two main ones. I preached on one of them last week, manhood and womanhood and how you understand it, and baptism. What, What do you do with babies in water? Do you decide to baptize or do you not? Those are secondary issues. Then there are tertiary issues. I know we're thinking a lot together here. Tertiary issues are issues in which you can be in the same church and disagree, and it doesn't matter. So you're like, well, I, I believe in the you know, Lord's Day, and, I, and I'm a Sabbatarian. And some of you are like, huh? You know, um, exactly. It doesn't matter. We could be in the same church. Uh, you could be pre-mill, post-mill, pre-trib, amill. That's all end-time stuff. It doesn't matter. Those aren't going to affect how we relate. You can believe different things about the miraculous gifts. I say all that to say, in this church, we want unity over the primary issues. That's what we emphasize. That's what we preach on the gospel. Secondly, and along with this, and this is why this takes some thinking today, I want to talk to you for a moment about the difference between biblical truth, I'm going to try to do this, biblical truth and personal conviction. Um, because I believe that the reason that Christians battle so much and they misunderstand each other and they judge each other and they become divisive and, and lack unity is they misunderstand the difference between biblical truth and personal conviction. Here's what biblical truth is. Biblical truth is what the Bible clearly says about an issue. Personal conviction is how you and your family want to apply that biblical truth to your lives. And I'm going to try to unpack this. And what I think it's going to do is it's going to, again, for those of us maybe who've been in the church for a little bit, it's going to help us be gracious toward one another. So here, biblical truth. Uh, No sex outside of marriage. 
It's like, that's what the Bible clearly says. That's what Christians have believed and practiced for 2,000 years. That's the biblical truth. Okay, what is your personal conviction on how to date and get into marriage based on that reality of staying pure? Some people decide dating. Some people decide courting. Others, dorting. Okay, we don't care here. Um, but it's like, okay, I'm going, that's my personal conviction. Okay, uh, it may be the biblical truth is no drunkenness. That's, a, that's, a, that's the biblical truth that you can't escape that is clearly stated. What is a personal conviction? Well, how you'd want to live that out in your life. So some people say, well, my dad was an alcoholic and my grandfather was an alcoholic and I don't want to be tempted. And so, okay, no alcohol for me. I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna be a teetotaler. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's, that's your conviction. Another person says, well, you know, actually, the Psalm 114 says that God gave wine to gladden man's heart and Jesus drank and it's a blessing, and, uh, but I'm gonna do it in moderation. Well, praise the Lord. But do you understand what happens is those two people judge each other. The person who drinks, like, oh, that other guy, you know, I wish you understood the Bible, you know. And then the, the, you know, and then the person who doesn't drink is always judging the person who's drinking, compromising, you know, not being a good witness to the watching world. It's like what, what, what's actually happening there is it's two people. This is so freeing if you'll get this. This is two people who have the same biblical truth are faithfully trying to live them out in, with different personal convictions. So, you know, the, the, the biblical truth, give, save, live. Give first to honor God, save second to be wise, uh, live off the rest, teach yourself contentment. That is the biblical teaching. You, can, you see it throughout Scripture. Well, I, I've seen people decide to do a lot of different things with their finances based on that. Some people say, well, praise the Lord, you know, it's a blessing, and I'm going to have a second or third home, and I feel like I can still be faithful to what I'm doing. Someone else who makes the same amount of money, well, I don't feel like I could really do that. The Lord's given me different priorities and different desires. Well, praise the Lord. Because it's the same biblical truth that you're both trying to apply. Biblical truth, you should be modest. You know, personal application. Leggings are okay, leggings are not okay. You know, I know we're not allowed to talk about these kind of things in church, but, that, but that's the kind of stuff that, that's the kind of things that's like, okay, well, where, where, and everybody gets on each other and starts judging each other. And I'm not saying there's not places to have civil conversation and disagree and dialogue and debate and all that. But, but really, at the end of the day, it's like there is so much great biblical truth. Biblical truth. Um, uh, be above reproach, abstain from evil. That's biblical truth. Personal conviction. Um, I don't want to watch that Netflix series. Oh, I feel like I can watch that Netflix series. Okay, great. I'm just, if you will get these things, you will have so much grace for other people. Now, here's the two dangers. Danger one, I told you there's a lot of thinking in this sermon. Um, <clears throat> danger one is to say, I'm going to make all of my personal convictions your biblical truth. That's religion. I, and we've all been to that church. It's like, okay, here's my conviction. We all need to homeschool and all need to wear jean skirts. Some of you came out of, that, came out of that church. You're like, praise the Lord, I'm out of that church. Um, that, because what it did was it took, um, it took the biblical truth, educate your children, and put the personal conviction on there, you have to homeschool. Biblical truth, educate your children. You're responsible. Personal conviction, homeschool, public school with involvement, Christian school, university model, magnet school. You see, you see what happens here. Now, here's the other danger. Biblical truth without any personal convictions. And that's what we call license. So one is legalism, one is license. In other words, oh yeah, yeah, I believe the Bible, I just don't really take a lot of time to try to apply it to my life. And so that's the danger is to say, yeah, yeah, I believe in biblical truth, but I don't have any personal convictions that are flowing from it. So that's the first type of unity, theological unity. Here's the second type of unity, philosophical unity. Um, and we just feel like this is a good time to kind of say this in our church, we just want you guys to know who we are as a church. Philosophical unity is how you do things. 
If you ever come to our weekend, or which we talk about all the time, you're going to find out how we do things. Um, for example, we, we, uh, we're all about groups. Everything we do is about groups. Student ministry is about groups. Uh, we want you in a community group. We want you in a DNA group. Uh, if you're like, I'm against groups, you're probably not going to be a very unified person in the church. We realize that we're not the church for everybody. We're the church for anybody, but we're not the church for everybody. Some people would say, I don't really like kids ministry. Well, then you're not going to like our church. Why well, think we should do single services? Well, you're not really going to like our church. And that's okay. I mean, we, we have to be grown-ups. Christians are the last, pe- the last people on earth in a good way that can say, all right, maybe we differ on this. Let's go different ways. But we want to have in this church theological unity, philosophical unity. Here's a third one, missional unity. What are we about? We're not a political church. We're not a red church. We're not a blue church. We're not a community service church. We're not just here to meet people's physical needs. At the end of the day, what we want to do is see people meet Jesus and be made into disciples. In fact, we believe something very offensive to culture today. We believe people need to be completely converted and born again, which is the exact opposite of what you're taught everywhere. Everywhere you're taught you're okay, uh, exactly how you were made, except who you are. Christianity goes, nope, we all need to repent. We're not okay. We all need to change. And it's so dramatic that we actually need to be born again from the inside out. And so that's the difference. And then finally, relational unity. And this is where it shows up in the text. Relational unity shows up in verse 8, where he says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. So he mentions three characteristics. The first, well, the middle one is brotherly love. He says, look, you have two families. Everybody who's a Christian has two families. Your family of birth and your family of new birth. Some of you do not come from a great family of birth. Some of you came from a great family of birth. The point is, when you become a Christian, you have a new family, a family of new birth, and that the primary way the Bible talks about the church is as a family. What does family do? We love one another regardless of our differences. We're committed to one another. And then he says, he gives two phrases. He says, tender-hearted and sympathetic. That one of those means care for, the other means care with. The, the big idea here is that you won't just think the same about the most important things. You're committed to feeling the same when one is doing well or not doing well. So the key text on this is, if you met, this is an easy verse to memorize. Uh, Romans 12, 15 says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, if you think about it, is it easier to rejoice with those who rejoice or is it easier to weep with those who weep? It's actually easier to weep with those who weep. Because here's what happens. When someone says, I got cancer, my fiance broke up with me. My dad died. I lost my job. We have a lot of medical bills. My kid's sick. It's like, well, what do you do in that moment? It's like, no matter what's going on, it's like, I, I love you guys, and, I, and I'm so sorry, and I want to, whatever's going on in my life, I want to come down to your level, and I, and I feel brokenhearted, and I want to pray for you. It's actually easier for the average person to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice, because what happens if your life's not going well, but somebody else's life starts going well in the exact area your life is not going well? Does that make sense? It's like the 27 bridesmaids, right? It's like you're, 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 you're a bridesmaid in your 35th wedding. And you've been wanting to get married for like 10 years. And your girlfriend calls you and says, praise the Lord, I'm getting married. And I'd actually like you to spend a bunch of money and fly out here and take vacation days and celebrate my marriage with me. Yay! You know, that's not the, you know... The, the natural inclination is like, wait a second, I want to get married. And then you start thinking all those thoughts like, well, what, well you know, I'm trying hard and I'm trying to be, you know, whatever. Um, then, then you've got the other person who, man, you know, you're working really hard and you don't, you're struggling to make enough money and you, you wish you could send your kids to school and blah, 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 blah. And then your buddy says, oh my goodness, you'll never believe this. 
I got this great uncle and I got this massive inheritance. Would you just praise the Lord with me that I got this massive? I'll never have to work again. Like, I ain't praising the Lord for that, you know? Um, but this is, it's only funny. It's like we laugh because we know how hard this is. It's very, very hard to rejoice with people whose lives are going well when our life is not going well. And, and I, I experienced this. Um, when about six months ago, a good buddy of mine who planted a church at the exact same time as me, um, in, in, in a really hard context, and his church is really struggling. And about six months ago, he came up to see me because he wasn't sure his church was going to make it. It's doing better now, but he wasn't sure his church was going to make it. It was single service. It was struggling financially. It was struggling with in, in every way. And he came up, and what he was, we were just talking, and he said, man, I want to see your new building. We just moved into this building for about a month, and I just thought to myself, I don't want to. I'm like, it looks like a crate and barrel when you pull up to it. You know, I'm like, it looks fairly nice. I'm like, it's a nice building downtown that we're like, we're running four services in and it's really, and this guy, you know, he says, no, I want to see it, man. So I said, okay. So I take him over here and we, and we pull up to it and he, and he gets out and he looks at me and he says, man, he says, I, w- I didn't know what was going to happen in my heart when I got here. He said, but I want to let you know, I'm not jealous at all. I'm really, really happy for you. He says, and I, I won't, I'm going to pray that God continues to bless this church. I, I want it for me too but I'm really, really happy for you. And I thought, that's, that's what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. Second thing we're called to. First, we're called to, that was all the first thing. That first, we're called to unity. The second two will be shorter. Secondly, we are committed to doing good in the midst of evil. We're committed to doing good in the midst of evil. If you look at your Bible, in verses 8 through 17, the word good shows up at least six times, depending on your translation. It's like, hey, be committed to having a good conscience and have good behavior and repay, um, repay when someone pays you evil, repay them good. Uh, and be zealous for good works. I mean, it just shows up. Again, if you want to see good days, if you look at verses 8 through 17, you're going to see the word good at least six different times. And what we want to be as a church is committed to good. There is good news. That's the gospel message. There are good deeds. That's what we do in Jesus' name. What would it look like for you to be committed to what is good for you? Start with yourself. And listen, what is good for you is different than maybe what you want. Because some of you are like, yeah, I tried what I wanted. I dated that. I bought that. I drank that. I went there. I looked at that. I thought that was what I wanted until I had it, and then I realized it wasn't what I wanted. It's like that's, that's the story of our own lives. One of the terrible things that you realize about yourself is you don't even know what's good for you. By the way, what is a midlife crisis? A midlife crisis is when you think you know what you want until you're in like about 40 or 50 and you realize uh, what I wanted wasn't good for me. And now I'm like, you know, half past living and I'm really depressed and anxious about all that. So I, I want to talk uh, for, for a little bit about what does it mean to do good? Now, here's a very interesting thing. Um, productivity and efficiency, you may not know this, productivity and efficiency are Christian ideas. Well, how did that happen? Well, by the way, if you've ever gone, I was just in India last year. If you ever go to places that have no, no Christian presence, no Christian gospel, no Christian heritage, you're like, why don't they care about time here? I'm not being egocentric. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's fun for like two days. You're like, oh, the bus is three hours late. You know, that's fun. Um, you know, everybody's really casual about it. And, and, and it is great. It's great the vacation there. 
But here's, here's the thing. Uh, the, the, what was called the Protestant work ethic, which has become efficiency and productivity, they're Christian ideas because here's, here's what efficiency is, and, and we've lost this. This is why it needs to be articulated again. Um, efficiency and productivity was this idea. What would it look like for me to do the most good possible for the most people possible in the shortest time possible? I, I don't know... You know, I can't tell each of your faces, okay? Um, some of you are not the most active listeners. I can't tell if you think that's exciting or not, okay? But that is like the best thing. It's like, you want to get up in the morning? It's like, that's it. What would it look like for me to do as much good as possible? As much, what, like, that would be amazing. Maybe that's how I should leverage my time and my energy and my money. And here's what's great. If you do something that's good, you're going to end up finding your life incredibly meaningful. Now, what is good? Now, biblically, good is what God would want for a situation. Uh, you know, how about alleviating suffering? How about disciples being made? How about addictions being broken? How about marriages being restored? Th this is the whole idea that what if your life was about doing as much good as possible? Look, he, he goes to such an extreme that I want you to see what he says in verse 13. Go down to verse 13. Here's what he says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. Now, what does zealous mean? Zealous literally means enthusiastic and energetic for what is good. Now, there's a lot of things that people are zealous about. You can just, I don't know you, each of your individual stories. What are you zealous about? A lot of people are zealous about their hobbies. A lot of millennials are zealous about traveling. It's like, how many weeks vacation can I get and how many places can I travel and how many pictures can I put on Instagram? Right? That's, that's kind of like a millennial's dream. Let me, you know, save up a lot of money and, and go travel the whole world and take pictures of it. Which is just, I mean, nothing wrong with traveling. I like to travel too. But it's like, let me, I don't know if I'm doing anything significant, so let me go somewhere significant. Maybe I'll feel significant if I stand in front of significant places. And so there's a lot of like zealousness. Like we're incredible. People are zealous about sports. People are zealous about Netflix. People, people are incredibly excited about a lot of different things. And if we're not careful, sometimes people would get very, very zealous about sin and it destroys their life. I mean, some of you, that's, if we could sit down, that's your story. That's the story of your family. Your grandfather was too zealous about alcohol. He was so energetic and so enthusiastic that he actually pursued that at cost of your whole family. Some of you, it's like your dad, he was very zealous for some other woman that wasn't your mom. It's like, so, and we're sorry. And you saw how that went. You know, it's amazing the extreme that men will go to hide their pornography addiction, and women too. Because of the just zealous. And it's interesting. I, there's a book out I highly recommend called Finally Free. It's a book I've taken men through before who deal with sexual addiction and other things. And one of the things it says in that book, it says that people who have an addiction, Christians who have an addiction, could be pornography, it could be you're, you're taking extra prescription medication, you're, you know, you're, you're drinking too much. He said people who have an addiction, they tend to think that's the only problem in their life. You'll hear people say this all the time. Man, if I could just not stop looking at porn, I, I would be basically a faithful Christian. You know, if I could just stop drinking too much, I would basically, for the most part, be a, if I could just stop being completely addicted to video games and waste, I would be a faithful Christian. And what's interesting is in this book, he actually says what the problem is, and what, what most men and women are missing when they're doing that is they're actually missing that every time they're in their addiction, they're not doing something good. It's like it's not just the time you spend doing that, it's all that it's hindering you from becoming and impacting in the world. 
And see, we believe here very strongly that when Jesus Christ said, you are the light of the world, that each person needs to shine their light, and when you don't, you leave a big hole. And some of you, it's like your spouses are like, shine some light. And your parents have been praying for you to be a light. And the great thing here is it's be zealous. The pornography addiction is a substitute for doing good works. This is, why, this is why the Apostle Paul always said, take off the old man and put on the new person. You can't just stop doing things. It's like, then you're like in neutral. I don't know what you're doing. You always have to take off the old person. You have to do something new, better, good for the new. So this is why he says, here's the key moment. He said, if you look, verse 16, he says, you have to have a good, good conscience. He says, verse 16, having a good conscience. So if you're going to be committed to good, you need to be zealous for good deeds, but before that, you need to have a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, so good behavior comes from a good conscience, in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's what the conscience is. We all have it. The conscience is what accuses you or approves you. Whether it's your past, your present, or what you're going to do in the future. It's that which accuses you and says, you know you shouldn't have looked at that. You know you shouldn't have said that. You know you shouldn't have lied about that. You know you shouldn't have gone there. You know you shouldn't have spent time with him. You shouldn't have texted him that late. You know, your conscience told you not to do that. Uh, but then it's also what excuses you. It's to say, no, no, no my, my, I love the Lord. I, 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 my, my conscience is clear. We're going to look at this more next week because Peter talks about this as well with baptism. We'll, we'll look at that. But um, here's the big thing with the conscience. That, and you know this, that with your conscience, if you keep telling it, shh, shh, this is okay. Nobody, this isn't hurting anybody. I'm a lot then what happens is your conscience eventually, it just says, uncle. It says, fine, I'm, I, the dog's going away, the gate's going open, go on in if you want. And this is why eventually things blow up in people's lives, and you're like, what, you were looking at that? And sometimes you're amazed. I can't believe, I, how did I get here? Well, the answer is one step at a time, one decision at a time. And so what you do with your conscience is, here's a rule of your conscience. You never disobey your conscience. You need it informed by Scripture, but you never disobey it. And this is, this is why I say this, because in 1 Corinthians 8, and you guys can look at that with the community group, in 1 Corinthians 8, there's this interesting passage where Paul says, hey, it's okay to eat meat. He's writing these Christians. He goes, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He says, um, but then he says this, he goes, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, um, but if you don't think it's okay to eat meat, don't eat meat. And you're like, Scooby-Doo, you know, like, I don't, what? It's okay to do it, but don't do it? And what he's saying is, um, don't ever go against your conscience because then you become the type of person who goes against your conscience. Then you won't know when to trust it or yourself. Then you can't trust yourself, which is a very scary thing because I'm the kind of person who breaks my own conscience. Well, now I'm in real trouble because that, that's one of the barriers and blockades and guardrails God's given me. So first, we need to be unified. Second, we need to be committed to doing good, good news and good deeds that flow from a good conscience and a passionate heart to do good deeds. Finally, we need to be committed to sharing hope in the midst of suffering. Here's what he says in verse 14. I've been kind of jumping around this evening. He says this, but we're covering it all basically. Uh, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So he's saying every Christian who is faithful will suffer. 
One of the humbling things to realize is that when the gospel goes forward, when the message of Christ goes forward, you always get two things. You get persecution and converts. And if you go, you know, I'm not being persecuted, you're probably also not seeing any converts. Every place I've ever gone where the gospel's going forward in power and people are being converted and people are being born again, there's also lots of persecution. Uh, you, you don't get baptisms without criticisms. They always go together. And so he's saying, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, which means being blessed doesn't mean life will go well for you. We kind of misuse that word. Um, blessed means the idea that God is with you and for you in the midst of your suffering. So then he says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then look at this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as, as holy. And then he says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So he's saying, as you're suffering, People are going to look at you and you're going to live differently and suffer differently than them and they're going to ask you this question. Uh, why are you acting differently? What hope do you have? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So he's saying this, that we should be, Christians should be, in the best sense of the word, living strange lives that make people ask questions. And if nobody's asking you any questions about your life and your hope, and I say this to myself, you go, well, why is that? It's because you're hoping in the same things they are. It's like, well, that's the same exact hope. They have the same financial goals as you. They think of their checkbook and their calendar and their relationships and their vacation and their hobbies and their free time and their weekends and their entertainment. You're the exact same. So nobody's going to say, what is your hope? I, I think that we need to be more faithful to live lives where people say, can you help me understand why you're different? It may, it may look differently. It may look, hey, hey, how can you be married for 35 years and still love your spouse? In a world where everyone's kind of divided and drifting, how do you love your spouse 35 years in? That's a great opportunity not to get weird, but just to say, you could just say, oh, we're lucky, aren't we? Ha ha, you know? Or you could be like, no, no, you know, here's what Christ actually makes a difference in our lives. And we've actually been able to, we've been forgiven so we can understand how to forgive one another. And I actually don't, I think it'd be very difficult to stay married apart from Christ. I'm thankful for Christ in my life. You know, somebody may say to you, you know, how, how do you put up with that overbearing boss again and again and again? You're the only one at work that doesn't complain. So, you know, many of you are in the medical field. How do you put up with just difficult patients and heavy workloads and dealing with death all the time? If you begin to live differently, people will ask you different questions. Hey, man, I know how much money you make. Why do you live at such a different level than everybody else who makes as much money as you? Like, I'm confused at the priorities and decisions that you and your family are making in light of how much money you make. Well, let me just tell you about my treasure. Let me tell you what, where, why I think, you're right. I would actually think, I would think exactly like you're thinking if I didn't have Christ in my life. So people are going to ask us questions and then here's the great encouragement. I want you to see this. This is, this is why it's so important to look at exactly what the text says. Look at verse 15 again. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. So he's saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. People are going to ask you questions about why your life's different. Then he says this, look at this. Always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you about the creation of the world. It doesn't say that. For anybody who asks you about biblical marriage and a defense of it. It doesn't say that. Always be ready to talk about the sanctity of human life. It doesn't say that. 
Always be ready to defend the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. It doesn't say that. I, I say that to be an encouragement to you. I think that one of the reasons, myself included, that, that we are often afraid to talk to others about Christ is we're afraid we're not going to have all of the answers to all of their questions. And that's a very, very intimidating thing. You know, I told you the story before. I was talking to some guy at Duke, and he looked at me, and he goes, I feel bad for you. And this guy's like 10 years younger than me. He goes, I feel bad for you. I, like, I feel bad for you. You know, that's what I thought I'd say to him. But I didn't feel bad for him. Um, um, he says, I feel bad for you. And I was like, why? And he says, you believe Noah's Ark really happened, don't you? My heart was like beating a thousand miles an hour. You know, he's like, he's like, how many animals are there in the world? And he took his iPhone out. You know, this many animals in the world. I'm like, yeah, but many of those live in the water. You know, I was like, ha ha. And, you know, and, and, and I was like, oh man, you know, and I just remember being, I just remember just being like overwhelmed because he's challenging all my beliefs and we're having all these questions. And, and what I found at Duke was that the more, I try to talk about everything else. All the hot cultural issues, all the, the least, the less we got anywhere. But the more I just said, can we talk about Jesus Christ? Can, can I share my story with you? Can we look at the Bible together and see who Christ is and what it means? That's when I would actually see lives changed. So that should be our focus. And it says, look, it says do this with gentleness and respect. That means that we are always, and this will make us strange to people, we are tender with people, we are tough on ideas. And that's okay, that's, that's a great mixture. Hey, I love you, I wanna, be, I wanna just talk to you and I wanna actually show you why what you're thinking is very foolish and how it falls apart. I want to be very, and you want to be very kind but never cowardly. You never want to apologize for what God said, but you want, to, you want a velvet steel. You wanna wrap it in a beautiful present as you give it to them. Before he says, and this is how he ends, in verse 15 he says this, or verse 17, in other words, rather, says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He, he's, Peter is ending, we're going to get more into this in chapter 4 too, but he's ending saying, getting the people ready to suffer. He's saying, for it is better to suffer if it's for good and if it's God's will. And we know that suffering can be for good and God's will because that's what we see in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ suffered the worst thing possible and it was for the good of us. And it was actually according to God's will. And what Peter's doing is he's saying now is the time to commit and decide. Now is the time if you're a student, if you're brand new in your career, if you're in the home and about to graduate, now is the time to decide to follow Jesus Christ, no matter what. In fact, I, this week as I was reading, I, I, um, I, I stumbled across the story uh, if you've ever heard the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, it's an old song. Billy Graham made it famous at his crusades years ago. But it's a song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And here's what's interesting. That, that um, I didn't know where that song came from, but that song came from a missionary uh, that was uh, a missionary story in India. There was, a, there was a tribe called the Nagali tribe in India. This is about 200 years ago. 150, 200 years ago, the Nagali tribe was in India, and there was a missionary that went over there and shared Christ with one of the uh, members of that tribe, and that man came to faith in Christ, and he and his whole family were baptized, trusted Christ, and, and then the, the chief of that tribe pulled those, that family aside and said, hey, you can't follow Christ. That's not the God of our tribe. You can't follow Christ. They said, We're gonna, we have decided to follow Jesus. And he said, well, okay, then I'm going to kill you. 
So he brings all, this is all a true story, brings them in, and uh, he says, I'm going to give you one last chance. Are you, renounce Christ or I'm going to kill your family. And the man says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And then they killed his two kids. They killed his wife right in front of him. And he said, okay, I'm going to let you go if you will renounce your faith in Christ. And he, has, and he said, though none go with me, I will still follow. And the man killed him. And, and the tribal leader was so overwhelmed. You can read about the story. But he was so overwhelmed by this family dying for Christ that he went to uh, find that missionary, and he said, tell me, why were they so bold in front of me? No one's bold in front of me. No one speaks back to me. No one you know, stands up to me. And they, they shared with this tribal leader the faith that this family had in Christ and the hope they had in Christ. Well, this tribal leader comes to faith in Christ, leads his entire tribe to Christ. And years later, this story is passed down for about 100 years until a famous hymn writer writes the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing, and, and at, toward the end, we're going to sing that song together as a declaration of our decision to be committed to Christ, to be unified, to be committed to good, and to be committed to sharing Christ in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Lord, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Lord, that's the great call that we saw in water baptism. That's also the great call on every Christian's life. Lord, I pray for our church to be unified over what is most important, to be united by truth, to be humble-minded and unified, to care for each other and feel for each other. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to doing good, that the anecdote to fighting sin in our life is not just saying no to sin, but saying yes to all the good things you have for us, the sharing of good news and the doing of good deeds. And Lord, I pray, not in any kind of dramatic way, but that you would get us ready to, to suffer, whether that's the suffering of persecution or the suffering of illness or sickness or injury, that we would suffer differently so that people would ask us where our hope is and we could share with them about you. I pray this in your name. Amen.